We are moving our way through the Gospel of Luke. This report that was filed by uh, Dr. Luke, a medical physician, amateur historian, and travel companion to the Apostle Paul. He wrote it initially for Theophilus, who I have argued was a Greek official in the Roman Empire, and a new Christ follower, and very possibly the one who was funding the, the travel and research that Luke was doing. Uh, I think that, that, in essence, that in essence, Theophilus said, uh, go and learn all you can about this Jesus, right? Go to the places, talk to the eyewitnesses, tell me everything that you can. And so Luke has put together this chronological account. And we're moving, not particularly rapidly, but we're moving our way through this report that Luke filed with Theophilus. And it opens with the birth narratives where, in essence, everybody around the birth of Jesus, including people who are around people who are around the birth of Jesus, are stunned and amazed. Angels, shepherds, officials, right? Everybody uh, is, is sort of stunned by who Jesus is, by this baby. Then we don't get much on, on Christ's childhood, just a glimpse at, at the age of 12 before we pick up with his baptism and temptation out in the desert. And that's what launched us into the Seven Deadly Sins series. We then came back, and the previous sort of mini-series out of Luke was called Amazed. And we were amazed at the things that Jesus said and did. As he began his teaching, as he is traveling around the area, uh, going from village to village, he was making claims that nobody else has made, right? I'm the answer to the scripture prophecy that you just read. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. He taught with an authority that nobody else had. Who is this guy, they would say. This, this teaching isn't like anything we've heard from anyone else. And then he was additionally doing these um, remarkable things. Sort of in a systematic way, he showed that he had power over evil. He had power over sickness. He had power over death. He had power over nature, right? He could cause uh, water to turn to wine. He could cause fish to swim into the nets of Peter, right? Everybody is sort of stunned by Jesus. And so now we are moving our way through um, the first major teaching that Christ gives. And it's alternately called the Sermon on the Plain out of Luke or Sermon on the Plateau or the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Matthew calls it. And Matthew gives it a bigger treatment. In Matthew's treatment, it's sort of clear that Jesus is the new Moses. Right? Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the tablets, with the law, with counsel about how slaves are to live as free people. And it's, it's the sort of the pivotal moment in Jewish history. Well, Jesus has just come down from a mountain, right? He selects the 12, and then he is now teaching them the, the new law, the new covenant. He's explaining the new deal, one that is not based on, on power and wealth, but it's based on mercy and grace and poverty of spirit. And he's, he's, he's welcoming them into a new community, a new way that life is going to happen. So Matthew gives us a little bit longer treatment. Luke's treatment, a bit shorter, but this is the fifth message in that series. The first one, I said, it's clear. Uh, the first big point that changes everything, I said, it's clear that we've got to shine our headlights beyond the grave, right? We've got to live today in light of the fact that we're going to live forever because eternity 
changes everything. And then the second message was um, this sort of shocking command that we are to love our enemies. We're to be the kind of people who treat our enemies as if they were friends. And then in the third message, Siler spoke uh, about the need to, to establish a strong foundation and that the way we get the strong foundation is by, um, by obeying the things that Christ has taught. And then uh, the, the fourth message last week, we heard from Pastor Harry Stackhouse at Sign of the Dove Church. And uh, pa- Pastor Stackhouse uh, went to Matthew. I said, we're, we're, in this, we're in this sermon, the first big teaching. You can go Luke or Matthew, pick a passage. And he went to Matthew and talked about that little transition from the Beatitudes, where Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor, blessed are... And then switches over. And in that case, he says, you are. Right now, you are the light of the world. You are the salt uh, that is to be a preservative. And he called us to step into that, that role. Today, uh, we're back in Luke. And today, we are going to be told to stop being hypocrites. Rather than sitting in self-righteous judgment of others, we should love others, be gracious to others, be kind to others, and judge others ourselves. And it pivots around a passage that everybody seems to know. If, if people today only know one Bible passage, this is the one that they know. It used to be that if people only knew one passage, they knew John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the verse everybody knows is don't judge uh, and if they think you are violating that, they will certainly violate it back at you, right? So um, the hypocrisy, the double standards go in every direction when we come to this passage. Uh, it is from Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. This is part of the ongoing teaching of Jesus. I'm going to read it for us now. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, um, blind tour guides leading, uh, you know, troops of blind people off of a cliff and someone with a, with a beam sticking out of their eye, the Greek word that's used here, dokon, refers to the load-bearing beam in a structure. So it's not just a little stick. Imagine a telephone pole. Somebody with a telephone pole in their eye making fun of somebody who has a little speck of sawdust in their eye. This sounds a little bit more like a 
I mean, honestly, it sounds a little bit more like a Monty Python sketch than it sounds like uh, the New Testament. Um, you know, do the, do the initials JC stand for Jesus Christ here or, or the great English theologian John Cleese? It's a little hard to tell uh, with what's been set up here, but this is clearly Jesus teaching and he's making some very important points. Now, Let's get a running start at this. I, I need you to understand that this, uh, that this statement against judging is not a blanket statement against all discernment. It is a condemnation of hypocritical judgment. We have to make assessments. We have, we have to weigh pros and cons. We, we, have, to, we have to assess and discern uh, the, the people and ideas that are around us. There isn't any way to live successfully if we're not making those kind of judgments, right? Just think about that for a second. And while you're thinking about it, realize that in thinking about it, you are making judgments about what I'm suggesting versus whatever other options you might think are out there. We have to judge. There is no way around it. And for the record, we are told to judge. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus instructs us to pay attention to the fruit of someone's life before we figure out whether or not we're going to follow what they say. In uh, John's gospel, Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteousness judgment. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says, examine everything carefully and hold fast to what is good. So the Bible is full of counsel instructing us to make judgments. Jesus and Paul and others will make assessments. They will make judgments. There's no way around it. Furthermore, we need other people making judgments. As a matter of fact, we want lots of other people making good, solid, wise judgments. We need teachers to correct papers. We need coaches to assess performance. Right? We need umpires to call balls and strikes or referees to call fouls. We need judges to offer just judgments in the courtroom. <laughs> we need lots of people thinking clearly and making judgments. Okay, so I, I, the, this statement is, is not telling us that we cannot make any judgments. The problem is that we make bad judgments. Now, just as, a, as an aside, before I go there, let me say that I briefly had an experience where somebody would not judge what I was doing. I had paid money to take an art class not an artist. I'm not very good. I'm a, I'm a great student. I know I'm not good. Uh, I don't really care. I, I'm, I'm under no illusion that I've got a lot of talent, but I'm very interested in learning. So I go to this art class and I'm painting and the instructor comes by and, and she says, How, what do you think? And I go, hmm, I'm, I'm trying. She goes, well, keep trying. And I go, well, how could I do this better? And she goes, well, do you think it needs to be better? You know, <laughs> Oh, yeah, uh, I think it needs to be better. And she goes, well, I'm not the kind of instructor that is going to critique 
people's work. And I go, well, but how will I get better? She goes, well, if you think it needs to be better, work with that. I go, work with what? I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. What brush? What, how do I mix the paint? I'm, I'm here for you to teach me this stuff. She goes, well, I think it's going to come to you. Look, in, look inside and get in, in touch with what's going on. So I went a few weeks and then I quit. I said, this is not working for me. We need people to make judgments. The problem is, not that people are making judgments, the problem is that people are making the wrong judgments. The problem is people are making flawed judgments. I'm making judgments based on incomplete data. You are as well. But the real problem is that we are making self-righteous judgments. We are making judgments based on wicked double standards, and that doesn't work. Now, again, part of the, part of the problem that is just always going to be in place is that we have limited insight. We don't have perfect information. We can't remember everything. We can't keep what we know straight. We're going to make bad judgments because we're finite beings. That's, that's a challenge. We've got to deal with it. But if we walk humbly, we can deal with it. The problem that we have, the big problem that we have, is that we are self-righteous. We need to understand how broken our hearts are and our broken heart's tendency to work on protecting itself and managing our image. We're hypocrites. We focus on the flaws of others instead of focusing on our own. We are bothered by the things that other people do, even as we continue to do those other things ourselves. In ways we often fail to see, we highlight the mistakes of others in an effort to divert attention from our own brokenness. And it's very hard to see. It's very hard to see this about ourselves. I want to play a brief film clip from a 1999 movie called The Big Kahuna. And it's a movie starring Danny DeVito and Kevin Spacey. And they're both um, sort of successful industrial lubricant salesmen at a big conference. And they're trying to land the big account, to land the big, get the big kahuna to sign the big contract. And there's a third salesman, a young guy in his 20s, um, and his name is Peter Fascinelli. And, and he has got, somehow he's got an inside track on this, the big kahuna. And so um, they have this, uh, they have an exchange, and there's been a, been a blow up, and Spacey has stormed out of this room. And so what's left is Danny DeVito and this young guy, Peter Fascinelli, whose who's name in this play, and it was initially a play uh, called The Hospitality Suite. So there's almost no action in this movie. It's all intense dialogue. But there is, a, there, there is a, a moment here where DeVito tries to help this young guy see himself. And this young guy is a Christian, but to see himself a little bit more clearly. Let's uh, run this clip. The man who just left the room a moment ago is a very good friend of mine. The reason being, I can trust him. 
I know I can trust him. He's honest. Is he honest? Or is he just blunt? He's honest, Bob. He's blunt as well. That sometimes is part of being honest. Because there are a lot of people who are blunt, but not honest. Larry is not one of those. Larry is an honest man. <sighs> you too are an honest man, Bob. I believe that. That somewhere down deep inside of you is something that strives to be honest. The question that you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of my life? What does that mean? That means that you preaching Jesus is no different than Larry or anybody else preaching lubricants. It doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to somebody honestly as a human being, Ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are. Just to find out. For no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation. To steer it. It's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. Oh, forgive me if I respectfully disagree. We were talking before about character you were asking me about character and we were speaking of faces but the question is much deeper than that the question is do you have any character at all and if you want my honest opinion bob you do not for the simple reason that you don't regret anything yet you're saying i won't have any character Unless I do something I regret? No, Bob. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. It's when you discover them. When you see the folly in something you've done and you wish that you had it to do over. But you know you can't. Because it's too late. Well, I, um, I'm not signing up for everything that DeVito is saying there, but I think he brilliantly captures this plea for a, a humility that is often lacking. And we are often hypocrites. It's the opposite of having integrity. The word hypocrite uh, comes over from the Greek, almost letter for letter, and it's translated in uh, as both hypocrite and actor. So the Greek word for actor is hypocrite. Now, it's, it's not suggesting that all actors are hypocrites, but all hypocrites are actors. See, we're acting better than we are. We're pretending 
to be better than we are. An actor in the ancient world would put on a face, right? So we put on a different face and we pretend that we are better than we are. And, and the thing that is so genius about what Christ is saying here is that we're doing this at a level that we're not even aware, right? The problem is not just that we're two-faced. The problem is that we lie to ourselves first. The problem is that we have a hard time seeing ourselves for who we really are. That's just a, that's a difficult thing to do. The human heart is very good at protecting itself, even from itself. And so we lie to ourselves first. You, you probably have heard of the Lake Wobegon effect. Garrison Keillor's fictional town, right? Uh, the time for God and the decades can improve where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. It's a fictional town, except it's not, right? Study after study shows that we think we're better than we are, right? In abilities, and telling the truth, and remembering what happened. And you just go down the list. 93% of drivers think they're better than average. 93% of drivers think they're better than average. I had a friend who lost his license because of the way he drove. He went to a class to, to get his license back. The first thing that the professor or the instructor did says, how many of you here are really actually better than average drivers? He says, every hand went up except for one. These are people who have lost their license because of the way they drive and cannot come to recognize that maybe I have a challenge. That's how deep the problems run. We have a very hard time seeing ourselves accurately, and it is a universal problem. We think uh, that we're better than we are. We think our country is better than it is. We think our company is better than it is. We think our sports team is better than it is. We think our high school somehow is a better high school than the Crosstown High School, right? And these are just sort of stages that we move through. It runs very deep within us. Now, let's be honest. Jesus is not the first person to call you a hypocrite. If you're married, if you had kids, teenagers, chances are someone has pointed out a little hypocrisy, a few double standards in your life. And it's painful when that happens. It hurts, but it's helpful. And, and I would make a special plea for, for those of us, because I'll put myself in this camp, those of us that generally gravitate to the more conservative end of the theological spectrum, to say, we occupy the same cultural space that the Pharisees did. And Jesus called the Pharisees self-righteous religious jerks. Now, I'm not saying that that's where we are, but we tend to take principled positions on things. Oftentimes, I would argue the right principled position. But then we judge people 
for failing to live up to those principles, even if they don't accept them. And we judge people for failing to live up to those principles, even as we don't live up to those principles. That's the challenge that we face. Now, look, we're not alone. I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy out there. There's one group that has sort of tried to get away from hypocrisy by just saying there are no standards, right? You can do whatever you want. Uh, Now, generally, those in that camp um, will say that there are no standards, but they come up with some standards. And one of the standards is that you have to agree that there are no standards, and if you don't agree that there are no standards, then they come back. I mean, if, if they will say, hey, we have to all be tolerant of everything, except we're not going to be tolerant of you not being tolerant of us, right? So it, it's complicated. Trust me, there's just a lot of hypocrisy out there. Fortunately, Jesus is calling us to a third way. And that third way is, is got three parts to it. The first part, in order to make this work, would be to embrace the gospel. Now, when I say that, I'm not simply calling on you to step over the line and put your faith in Christ. I would certainly call you to do that. But I am calling on you to embrace the gospel. Many of you have not given up the default approach which says, I have to be good enough. I have to be good enough. And it is, and I'm going to hide the bad. I'm going to hide it even from myself because it's so bad that I can't even look at it. And the gospel is freeing when you realize God knows the worst about me and he still loves me. That understanding changes everything. That is the understanding that completely changes our ability to then Co-fess our mistakes, right? To agree with God that we're broken. And from that position of being broken and confessing that we're broken, we move through life with a very different posture, with a, with a humility that is willing to, to, as opposed to judging people in a hypocritical way, say, you too, we've all got issues. I've got mine. You've got yours. Let's try and encourage one another to move forward. In love and good deeds. We don't have to hide this stuff even from ourselves. So the first thing that I would, I would say is that you need, we need to embrace the gospel. Secondly, assume the log is there. Okay? Just assume that it's in your eye because I'm pretty confident that it is. Uh, we need to start with ourselves, stop trying to fix other people, and try to fix ourselves. Not so God will love us, but out of, uh, but out of a position of freedom and grace. Now, again, it is very hard to have an accurate, accurate per- perception of ourselves. The heart is very good at image management, and it goes below the lines. I remember slightly different situation, but when I was working as a management consultant, one of the things that I realized that I brought as a value add to a company was that I could be objective about their performance when they couldn't be, right? So I would find some, something that, they, that, that was important, something to measure, something that they thought they were good at, 
And uh, I would then go about trying to find ways to assess that. I'd get the data or I would call customers and ask for the customer feedback. And then I'd go and I'd, I'd find somebody that was really good at that, some other company, and I would benchmark against that. And then I would come back and I would make this presentation and I'd say, by the way, you know, how do you think you're doing on this? And I'd get their answers and they would be, well, we could do better, but, you know, we're pretty good. And I go, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, so you're saying I, I hear about a 7. Yeah, we're a 7. Okay, great. So here's your customers' responses to this, right? Or here's the data on this. And, you know, it's taken you four months to do this. It takes this company nine days. So I would just present this data, and I just learned that after I presented it, I just needed to sit down and, and prepare for the fireworks, which would go on for certainly for hours, if not for days, and, and for a while, sometimes for weeks, where they would attack me, they would attack my mom, they would attack the data, they would attack the other company, they would attack each other, they would attack, they would just go after everything except looking at the honest facts and saying, I got to get better, right? It's very hard for us to look at ourselves objectively. So how can we get this accurate view? Well, there are a few things that actually we can take advantage of. One of them would be suffering. Suffering is often a time when we can get a little bit clearer perspective on what's going on. Another would be contemplation, right? To actually have some time where we're quiet and we're, we're listening, prayerfully listening to God, not the voice that's playing in our head telling us that we're good or bad or whatever it's telling us, to not listen to that, but just to prayerfully, meditatively be quiet with God. A third thing that we can do is we can selectively ask people to help us see ourselves and then accept what they say. So I have a few friends, and I've shared this before, and, you know, once a year or so, we'll do this thing. This is called two plus one. And uh, it's just a, you know, the, the deal is uh, we're going to share two affirmations and a challenge. And we'll take, you know, there's, there's three of us, so we'll take one of the guys, and I'll say, okay, this is, this is something I want to affirm in your life. This, this encourages me. You ought to be proud of this. You ought to be, you know, get, this is great. Then here's something I think you need to work on. One man's humble opinion, but this is something I think you got to work on. You don't see it. Think others do. Got to work on it. And then here's another affirmation. And then the next guy will go, same thing. Okay, here's something I want to affirm. Here's something I want to challenge. When you start to hear the same things about what you got to work on from various people, different people, someone other than your spouse. And I just realize that if, if you're not getting feedback from anyone else, then at some point you're going to get that feedback from them. And Sherry came to me a couple years into our marriage and said, you need people speaking truth into your life. I can't be the only one. You're not treating me well right now. And I shouldn't be the one to have to point this out. So we need to create some opportunities, safe opportunities, to hear this kind of feedback from others. <clears throat> so number three, 
I've said the first thing we've got to do is embrace the gospel. Second thing we need to do is assume that the log is there. The number third, the th- third thing we need to do is we need to treat others in the way that we want to be treated. Be kind and gracious to others. Treat them the way you want God to treat you. That's what the passage is saying. Set the standard, but then just understand that standard is coming back at you. Matthew's uh, statement on this passage says, For the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And then Luke has got Jesus saying something slightly different. Luke has got Jesus saying that if we extend grace, love, and care, it will be given to us. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap, for the measure you use will be measured back to you. Treat others graciously. (laughs) Because you want to be treated graciously. Forgive because you want to be forgiven. These are the rules of the new community that Christ wants to set up. Now, there's more that could be seen here. Um, there's more, if we looked at Scripture about how to judge, it's clear that we are to, we are to do so on the basis of truth. It's clear that we are we're to assume that people are innocent until proven guilty. That idea of U.S. Uh, law actually comes out of Matthew 18. If we've got bad news to deliver to somebody, then we're going to judge them. We need to do that privately. There's other things that we could, that we could see here. But... Um, I want to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is to say, you and I, we are hypocrites, and it needs to stop. We need to understand how easy it is to be wrong in our assessments of others and um, wrong in our assessment of ourselves. We need to embrace the gospel. We need to move into a position of freedom that comes with knowing that if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. He knows the worst about me. He loves me not on the basis of the fact that I'm lovable. I'm not. He loves me because he is loving. He's the hero, not me. But that puts me in a completely different frame. We need to embrace the gospel. Secondly, we need to assume that the plank is in our eye. In fact, we need to recognize that the plank in our eye was so big that the Son of God had to be nailed to it and die in our place. And then finally, we need to treat others with the benefit of the doubt that we want them to extend to us. These are, the, these are some of the rules. These are some of the ideas of the new community that Christ is creating. Let me pray for us.